we have been going through the topic of knowing God, the quest to know God over the past few months since the beginning of the year, since January. And as we have gone through this concept of looking at knowing God, not just knowing about God, but really truly knowing God, um, the difference between factual knowledge and intimate relational knowledge of knowing God, we have seen the fact that it is paramount because Jesus said that this is life eternal. Now, if you've been here through all this, hopefully this verse has just become a part of who you are because you're hearing it every week, right? But this is life eternal, that they may know you, intimately, relationally know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Who said that? Jesus said that. God in the flesh, Yahweh incarnate, while he was on the earth, stated that eternal life was knowing God. It's not a religion. It's not punching a ticket. It's a relationship. And that's what God desires. And from the beginning, before he ever laid the foundations of the world, he had established, knowing that his creation would sin, would rebel, would turn away from him, that he would come and he would be the perfect sacrifice, the perfect payment, so that he could redeem us to himself, so that we could have reconciliation with him and have a relationship, a loving relationship with the God of the universe. And that is mind-boggling to me. Totally, 100% mind-boggling. And so, as we've gone through this topic, this subject, the desire has been to not just study God and get a lot more factoids about God, but to learn more about God in our study, in our quest, if you would, to be like getting to know your spouse better and better all the time in that sense of study, in that sense of learning, in that sense of knowing them better is to know God better by understanding who he is, what he has done, and what his character is like. And so, in our study, we have looked at the existence and exclusiveness of God, that he is, and that he is the only God. We have looked at the fact of his um, composition, that he is one, he is one Lord, and yet he has revealed himself to us, being three parts, and yet one God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And then we began to look at the attributes of God, looking first at his natural attributes, his sovereignty. We're looking at his vocational attributes, that is that he is the creator, he is the, 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 the judge, and he is the savior. And we have been, over the past two or three months, look, been looking at his moral attributes. His moral attributes declaring who he is, how he acts, what his character is like. And so in that, we began looking at the fact that God is holy. We looked at the holiness of God. We looked at he is love. We looked at the love of God. We consider then the faithfulness of God. And in that faithfulness of God, we consider the fact that he is unchanging. And remember I said that many would would consider the fact of his unchangingness as one of his natural attributes, but I believe it's more of a moral attribute, that I believe that he is unchangeable because he is faithful. 
And so as we looked at the, the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the long-suffering, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, the self-control, that those are fruit that come out because of God dwelling in you, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, and you begin to, to, to reveal godly characteristics and godly attributes. And so God has those attributes of faithfulness and self-control. And so God does not change. He is faithful. He is faithful to his covenants. And, and it's something that you and I should be very excited about because of the fact that the promises and the covenants that he's made with you, he will not change. He will be true to. And then, over the last two weeks, we began looking, we looked at the righteousness of God, and we considered that in opposition to the righteousness of man as well. We considered um, who God is and the importance of his righteousness and his justice, and then how that applies to us. And though I didn't get to talk about it a lot, it's important to recognize the fact that the righteousness of God really is an outworking, if you would. It, it, it has strong ties to the holiness of God. The fact that God is holy, 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 that he is separate from all things. And so, therefore, his standards of righteousness are what? Holy standards of righteousness. And, and so, so, his righteousness really is a derivation almost, though it's, it's separate, yet it's, it's almost like a derivation coming from the pillar of, of his holiness. If you kind of look at the holiness of God and the love of God being, remember what we talked about, those being two primary pillars in his attributes, kind of having the, the tension. So God's love is constrained by his holiness, and God's holiness is tempered by his, his love. And so they come together. Today, we want to begin looking now at the next of these more attributes, and that is the goodness of God. Now, the goodness of God, again, is, is kind of like we talked last week with the righteousness of God and including in the justice of God because justice really is a, a, an outworking of, of applying righteous standards, okay, the righteous standards of God. Well, the goodness of God, as we're going to see in a moment, really brings that, the outworkings almost of his faithfulness and love okay, to us as well. And, and in his goodness... His goodness is going to be tied as well to his, his righteousness. There's going to be this intertwining to his righteousness. But, but in God's word, which we're going to see here, God's goodness is really brought out in a twofold manner, which I've debated whether to, to, how to present all this data. And as you're going to see these twofold manners, you're going to say, well, man, I thought those would be messages by themselves. But as I studied the scriptures on these things, these are really outpourings. Of, of God's goodness. Now, first, let's talk about then this this goodness of God, and we see in the book of Exodus, chapter thirty-three, verse nineteen, and then the conclusion of it in Exodus thirty-four. And you can turn there if you want to, but some of these verses I've got up on the screen, and so just to just help us speed things along. But in Exodus thirty-three, verse nineteen, then Yahweh says, and God said, "Okay, I will make all my goodness pass before you." He's talking to who? Moses, good, okay. He's talking to Moses. And this is out in the, in the, in the wilderness. And, and, and Moses is struggling, and, he, and, and he's, he's asking God, listen, God, you've got to go with us, because if you don't go with us, I really don't want to lead. And God's saying, you know, I, I'm with you. And he says, well, you know, I want to see you. So God says, 
I'll let you see me. I'll make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. I will be gracious, and you can see that it has Hanan there. Okay, we'll come back to that. Okay. To whom I will be gracious, Hanan. And I will have compassion, Racham. On whom I will have compassion, Racham. And then the fulfillment of this, God says, I'm going to do this. And then the fulfillment happens in Exodus 34, where God actually passes then before Moses. Okay, and it says, Now Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. And Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, the sovereign Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, okay, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, Racham, and gracious, Chen, that is Chanan, long-suffering and abounding in goodness, Chesed, in truth, Emet. Okay, now, what did God say to Moses? He was going to let Moses see his goodness. Okay. How did his goodness? How did God declare his goodness? What did he state was good about him? His mercy and his grace. His grace and his mercy. That God is full of mercy, and God is full of grace. Now, what's interesting here is that I want to bring out is back in 33, verse 19, the goodness of God, what he talks about there is tov. Tov is the Hebrew word for good. Okay? And so, he's talking about what is good. Okay? But note in his fulfillment of this, when he's saying that he's going to be the merciful God, the gracious God, long-suffering, abounding in goodness, it's not the word tov. It's that word that I say is my favorite word of all the, in, in, in the entire Bible, and that's the word chesed. That's right, chesed. Clear the throat. And what's really fun about this is you notice all these words of, of throat clearing happening here, right? Chanan and chen and racham and chesed. I mean, so you really have to get this guttural thing going on today, okay? But anyways, but chesed. Chesed. And here chesed is being translated as God's what? Goodness. Goodness and truth. Well, actually it's Faithful and true. When you, we bring this into um, the New Testament, God is called, for Jesus, in John chapter 1, full of grace and truth. In Revelation, Jesus is called faithful and true. But throughout the entire Old Testament, dozens of times, God is referred, Yahweh is referred to as chesed and emet. Chesed and emet. Chesed and emet. He is faithful and true faithful and true, or grace and truth. Grace and truth. And so, we see then, in the Old Testament, there are three primary words which taught, refer to the goodness of God. First we have racham, okay, which means to be full of compassion, mercy, compassion, or tender mercy, compassion. Okay? Those are kind of how the word is translated in, in the um, King James, New King James, different versions you have. Okay? You have then the word chesed, okay? Chesed, which we talked about before when we went through the faithfulness of God. Okay? Because the word chesed, for Bob, Bob's translation of the word chesed, is the faithful loving kindness of God to the objects of his covenant. Okay? If you bring all the, the, the verses together where chesed is there, it, it's God's faithful loving kindness. And so you can see it is translated many times mercy, favor, kindness, loving kindness, and even as we saw, goodness. It's even translated as well as goodness. Okay? And then we have the final word, chen, or chenan, chenun, okay? 
which means favor, grace, graciousness, sometimes mercy. Now, in Genesis chapter 6, where the whole world is full of wickedness and God is, is sorry that he's ever made man, right? We're told right on the heels of the fact that God is sorry that he ever made man that there was a special man whose name was what? Noah. And Noah found what? Chen. He found Chen in the eyes of God. He found favor. He found grace. He found unmerited favor in the eyes of God. When Joseph, somebody's been studying Joseph, right? Did you guys study Joseph in Sunday school? You did, huh? And, and what happened, how did Joseph go to Egypt? Do you remember? God. Okay, God's, you know, it's kind of like with the kids, you know. God, Jesus, Bible. I mean, you know. It, 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 it. Okay, well, okay. God was sovereign and God took him there. But how did Joseph go to Egypt? How did, was, it a, was it a good thing? Did his, did his brothers send him there? Yes, they did. <laughs> Who's teaching you? <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> All right. So, forget asking the three-year-old, okay? All right. So, so the reality, though, is Joseph goes to Egypt, right? He's, he's enslaved. And from his slavery, he's thrown into jail, right? Seems like it's a really a, a downer. But in each place, God allows Joseph to find favor with Potiphar, and then with the jailer. In fact, in that passage, you check me out on this later, it says that Joseph found favor and grace in the eyes of the jailer. He found chen and chesed. They're intertwinable. This is why I put them up here. Because it's, it's the concept of, of mercy and favor throughout the Old Testament many times are indistinguishable. There is a big debate over, over this in um, the theological realm. And, and there are many who, who want to, 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 to separate mercy and grace, to, that they're two totally separate things. And, and I, they are, and we're going to see this in a moment. But they are so intertwined in the goodness of God that God's grace is an outpouring of His mercy, and His mercy is intertwined with His grace. Why? Because God is good. And one of the big things a couple years ago was to say that God is good. What? All the time. All the time. God is good. And so, anyways, and so you go back and forth. So so the leader would say, God is good. And the congregation would say, all the time. And the leader would say, all the time. And the congregation would say, God is good. Were you there at the the Nigerian meeting when they did that? They're back and forth, back and forth. And so you had, I have these African guys all in my, my brains saying this. God is good all the time. All the time. God is good. And, and then I heard it on the radio, and I thought, wow, okay, so this must be the current thing here. Anyways, but it is true. God is good all the time. Okay? In the New Testament, we see two primary words. We see alaleo. Alaleo primarily means what? Mercy. Compassion. Tender mercy, tender compassion. Have pity on somebody. Having compassion on them. Okay? And then we have the word charis. Okay? And uh, that's Anna's middle name. is charis. And, and it means favor, to have a gift, or grace or graciousness. To be gracious toward. Okay? 
But the word grace then there really is the derivation of having favor. And so you can see where these concepts, where our New Testament concepts of these, really come out of the Old Testament concepts of racham, chen, and chesed. Okay? And so, bringing it all down, taking all those terms, bringing them together, what do we got? Well, grace is unmerited honor or favor rendered by one who need not do so. That's important. It's unmerited honor and favor given by somebody, okay, rendered by someone who doesn't need to do it. So unmerited means what? It's undeserved. You don't, you don't deserve it either. You, you know, he doesn't have to do it because you don't, in other words, like you didn't win the, the prize here and he has to give it to you. You know, it's, it's not like um, uh, Herod saying to Herodias' daughter, you know, I want you to dance for me and if you dance for me, I'll do anything I, I, you ask, even up to half of the kingdom, right? And so she dances before everybody, right? And so now he knows he's made what? He's made the comment publicly, and he has to do it. And so she says, I want the head of John the Baptist. And though he doesn't really want to decapitate John, he's given his word in front of all these people, so now he's bound to do it. That's not grace. Him doing that for her was not an act of grace. Okay? Because she did exactly what he said. Grace is unmerited favor or honor. Okay? Steve? Nope. 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 We're going to come to mercy in just a second. Okay, that's okay. And so, you can see the culmination. Grace is then, when I get what I don't deserve. Mercy, good transition, Steve. On the other side is, compassionate or kindly forbearance shown toward an offender, an enemy, or other person in one's power. Okay? In other words, when I do not get what I do deserve. Okay? And so you can see how, again, what we said earlier, how this concept of God's goodness... That it's going to be worked out in, in two ways, okay? It's also going to be intertwined with God's righteousness, with his justice. Because I am a sinner. This is kind of like an AA meeting, only we'll call it this an SA meeting, right? This is a Sinners Anonymous. Hi, I'm Bob. I'm a sinner. Yeah. Hi, Bob. <laughs> I'm a sinner. We're all sinners too, you know? And, and the reality is, it should be. You sh- everyone here should recognize at least one basic piece of information about yourselves. And that is what? You're sinners. Even though you may have obeyed the whole law, and yet you've offended it at one point, you are guilty of what? Of it all. And because you're guilty of it all, the reality is you're guilty of God. And because God is righteous and because God is holy, you are therefore deserving of what? Death. Condemnation, hell, however you want to state that, you're deserving, you're deserving of condemnation. Okay? God in his mercy, think about this. God in his mercy does not want to give you what you deserve. Do you get that? He could, I mean, he didn't need to do this. God is just, God is righteous. And he could have created man. And when man stumbled and man fell, he could have said, well, I guess all of men are going to do what? Go the way of the angels 
which fell. Because think about this now. Lucifer and his, and his companions, did God ever extend mercy to them? Really? Well, okay, he lets them rule here, but not in the eternal sense that, that we're, we think about. They have no second chance. And then, as an outpouring of God's mercy, his grace takes over. And understand, this is all his goodness. So God's goodness, in God's goodness, he says, I don't want man to have to be condemned. So he extends his mercy, and then his grace, and his grace is to give us something that we do not deserve, and that is a way to have a relationship with him. And so by his grace, he says, no longer do you have to come to me by works, but now you can approach me based upon your faith. Does that make sense? And so we then see the expression of God's goodness coming to us. And so we see in Romans 2, verses 3 and 4, this transition and coming from the righteousness of God, the justice of God, to the goodness of God. Because remember in chapter 1, we, we, we went through Romans 1 last week a whole lot, talking about how the, that the gospel is all about the righteousness of God. Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, right? But men have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, right? Because they don't want the righteousness of God. They want their unrighteous works. And so coming right out of that, we have this. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things, what such things? Unrighteousness. Okay? Unrighteousness. And so do you think, O man, who judge those practicing unrighteous deeds, and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? What is the goal of the goodness of God? Repentance. What is the goal of the justice and righteousness of God? Righteous judgment. Do you see the, 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 the beautiful balance in these attributes of God? God will judge. He will hold man accountable. But in his goodness, he desires all men to what? Repent and come to the knowledge of truth. 2 Peter chapter 3. God is long-suffering, not desiring that any should perish. And so God in his goodness works through his mercy and his grace in a way to draw us to him. Now, in the concepts of mercy and in the concepts of grace. We talk right now, right now I've been talking a lot about the, the eternal realm. But consider for a moment the goodness of God that God places through what is referred to theologically as common grace. Okay? I, I just get rid of that terminology for a moment and just bring it back to the goodness of God. To all men. To all creation. We're told by Jesus that God makes the sun to what? He rises on the just and the unjust the same. And he causes it to rain on the wicked and the 
the righteous at the same time. God, God does not 100% of the time withhold his blessings from those who have not chosen him. That is his mercy, and that is his grace, two separate sides, not giving them what they deserve. People always say, man, what did I do to deserve this? And the reality is, I deserve what? A whole lot worse. That's exactly right. And everyone's always debating why good or why bad things happen to what? Good, pe- good quote-unquote, quote good people. We don't get it. We don't understand that God's grace and God's mercy is withholding so many things. Does anybody know what the purpose of the Holy Spirit, the, what, I mean, the, the ministries of the Holy Spirit in the world is? Now, I understand the ministry to me as a believer is to seal me to the day of redemption and to lead me into all truth and to remind me of the teachings of Jesus. But the, the, the Holy Spirit, that's right, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of righteousness, judgment, and sin. That God's Holy Spirit has been working it, it's not. I, it's mind-boggling to me, and, and I'm, and, and you are, and I am in this realm of dispensationalism. Okay, and I, I'm a dispensationalist, but I differ a little bit in certain things. That that many people believe that the 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 removal of him who restrains in Thessalonians is the church being taken up because the Holy Spirit's within us, and because the Holy Spirit's in us, the Holy Spirit then is has this restraining influence upon the world. And I say that's a bunch of bunk. No, that's not true. That even before the Holy Spirit ever came in and dwelt believers, the Holy Spirit has already been what? Having a restraining influence in the world. That's always been his job. That's always been his function. The Holy Spirit has always been working in the world to convict the world of righteousness, judgment, and sin. And in Romans chapter 1, when God hands man over to his own lasciviousness, I think there what's happening is that God is removing his restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit upon those nations, upon those people. Even when me, I as a believer am here, I still have the Holy Spirit dwelling in me. It's just that that overarching ministry of the Holy Spirit is being stepped back. God says, you want to be God? Go ahead, you be God. See what, see what you accomplish with it. And we saw in Revelation through the seals and the, and the, and the trumpets what man's going to accomplish. They're going to destroy themselves. We consider those the judgments of God, but God's judgments really, uh, through those seals and through the trumpets, really is just taking his hands off a man and saying, go ahead, guys. You do it. And so we see what? War. We see financial destruction. We see pestilence. We see, we see diseases coming upon man that are probably being generated, not just in MCG, but other, other laboratories all around our world. It's a mind-boggling thing when you see some of the things that, that we are creating <laughs> and that we're going to kill ourselves with. But God's mercy, God's grace, God's goodness is bestowed upon all men. People eat, people drink, people breathe. I mean, we were worried the last couple of days, had, had the uh, severe weather alerts put out. Does anybody know why? Over... The, the air, the, say it again, the air condition, yeah, but not the air conditioner, but the air conditioning, but it was the condition of the air, anyways, forget that, and so, what was wrong with the air? The ozone layer was a little bit lower, so the ozone count was higher, 
And so you need to be careful you went out and how much activity you did, you did and stuff like that. But isn't it amazing that we never think about that on a normal day? I mean, do you, do you look every morning to find out what the particulates are of everything to make sure there's enough oxygen in the air? You know, was there enough nitrogen? Is there enough carbon dioxide? I mean, is, there, is, is, is the combination of air good enough for you to walk outside today? You know, you don't think about that. We don't check that. Why? Because God's goodness. To give you the proper th combination of, of chemicals, if you would, um, elements for you to be able to breathe. It's probably no worse than 15 years ago when you couldn't measure it. That's exactly right. Thousands of years, people have not been worried about whether they could breathe or not. They, they just have breathed because God did what? Because God made it so. We have food. We have water. We have sunshine. It's an amazing thing. We have rain. God's goodness. But in all that, the purpose of God's goodness in all that is to do what? To bring us to repentance. To bring us to repentance that we would know that there is a God and there's a God who desires to have a relationship with us. So, the goal of God's goodness is to lead us to repentance. In the process, first of all, in the process of redemption. Okay? And so, Ephesians chapter 2, 4 to 9, a passage that many of you well know, probably. Okay? Beginning at verse 4, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, which, with which he loved us, even when we were what? Dead, dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by what? By grace. Ah, by grace you have been saved. And raised up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that on not of yourself, it is the gift of God. So, I want you to look at this passage now. You are saved by what? By grace. What was grace? No, it's not God's mercy. It's a gift. It's an unmerited honor or favor that is bestowed on us by someone who doesn't need to do that, right? Okay? So he doesn't need to do that. And so what, though, is God's grace? Look at this. It's giving us the opportunity to come to him by what? By faith. But where did it initiate? Where did this, this act of God's grace initiate? In his mercy. Do you see it up above? But God who is what? Rich in mercy. Because God want, wanted to hold back. Now, this is two illustrations here. might help you. I just, it just kind of popped in my brain this morning as I was meditating on this. And so this may help one of you. Okay? Um, First illustration of this is um, a Disney movie. Okay, um, it had Darren McGavin in it and Don Knotts. So Don, telling you Don Knotts immediately tells you what? It's a comedy. Okay, so but it's called No Deposit, No Return. Darren McGavin plays a, uh, a safe cracker. Okay, Don Knotts is his bungling assistant. Okay, and so they're going to go um, the biggest heist they've ever had. They're going to go knock off the the, the safe at the um, at the airport, tons of cash there. But at the same time they're doing that, these two kids that are trying to get away from their, their parents are coming through the airport. The boy has a skunk. The skunk gets away. Um, mayhem's happening down there in the, the terminals, you know, because of the skunk. 
somebody hits the alarm, you know, and so just as they're knocking into the safe, the alarms go off, they think what? They're caught, so they take off, leave all the money there, they take off, you know, and, and, and anyways, they go outside to find out that where Don Knotts had parked the car was in a no parking zone, and so the car now is being towed away, okay? So they jump into a cab, at the same time these two kids jump in the cab, right? And so now their, their lives are now intertwined. Okay, so the kids talk them into, they don't want to go back to their grandpa, so they talk into Don, Darren McGavin and, and Don Knotts into being kidnappers. And they really don't want to get into kidnapping, that's too big, that's, that's, that's not good stuff, you know? But the kids write the, the letter and send it off anyway. And so, so they, they make Darren McGavin and Don Knotts into kidnappers. Well, anyways, the inspector for the, for the police department is, is just chomping at the bit to find Darren McGavin. He doesn't know who Darren McGavin is. He just knows that this is a safe cracker who has eluded him for years, okay? And uh, um, has certain ways that he does things, and he's able to get into safes that nobody else is able to get into, though he never gets the cash. Something always happens that he's never able to get the, the reward out of it, but he's able to do this, and, and the inspector wants him more than anything else, but now he's taken off the case because there's this this um, kidnapping of this rich man's, this rich man's grandkids. And so he's taken off of this big case to put, put on this big case. And needless to say that both those cases are what? Intertwined. So the end of the movie, make a long story short, the end of the movie, the kids get locked into Grandpa's safe. Okay? And they're trying to find them. The inspector and the safe cracker come together in Grandpa's house. Okay? Through a long, it's a, make a long story short here. You just got to watch it. It's a great movie. Anyways. And so there they are, stuck in this safe. It's locked. You know, somebody bumped it. They just kind of closed it a little bit, tried to hide in it, but somebody closed it. They're stuck in there. And so, you know, how much time do they got? Well, Darren McGavin says, well, it's about, it's about they got 20 minutes. And everybody looks at him like, how do you know? And, you know, and, and the inspector says, well, there's only one guy I know, which I actually never knew, but I've been hunting for all these years. Only one guy I know could get into that's safe. And Darren McGavin's just standing there looking like, oh, you know, what am I going to do? You know, because he knows who the inspector is. He knows who's been looking for him, right? And so he says, well, you know, I, I might be able to do something. I, I kind of fuddled with this stuff earlier in my life, and so he's playing with it. And meanwhile, the inspector finds this little black bag that has all the, the listening devices and the tape and everything else that he uses to get into these safes. He says, do you think these will help? And he says, oh, well, yeah, those might help. So anyways, long story short, he gets them out of the safe, right? I mean, his, all of his electrical equipment so they don't work. He's got to do it by ear. He gets them out, right? The kids get out, and they run to him. They hug him. The, the, the mom's there by that time. They hug the mom, but they hug the, the safe cracker, who they've really adopted as uncles, you know, because they didn't really want to be kidnappers anyway. And Darren McGavin turns to the inspector, waiting to be arrested. I mean, because it's all up, right? And he says, well, inspector, and he has his hands like this, like he's going to be what? Handcuffed, right? And the, hand, and the inspector says, I must have been wrong. There must be two. And from what I understand, the other guy's retired now, isn't he? And Darren McGavin says, yeah, you're right, he is. In that moment, the inspector issued what? Mercy. Mercy. And the other side of the coin was 
grace, if you would, to dear McGavin. Mercy, because righteousness and justice was on the side of who? The inspector. Was Darren McGavin guilty of, of cra- uh, safe cracking? 100% he was. But the inspector extended mercy. And through the mercy, he gave grace for Darren McGavin to begin a new life. He gave him a what? A second chance, a gift. Les Miserables. Les Miserables has different themes going through it, but one of the great themes going through Les Miserables is the theme of mercy. If you've never read it or um, saw it or listened to it, it's, it's a neat one, and I would recommend to you getting Focus on the Family Radio Theater's version of Les Miserables. It's a great, great thing. But in it, there is Inspector Chavez, and Inspector Chavez is the epitome of law. He's the law. Old Testament, law. Everything's according to law. But there is Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean was a, was a prisoner who spent, I think it was 19 years. Am I right? Cool. Good job, Andrew. 19 years in prison for what? You remember? For stealing a loaf of bread. That's exactly right. Now, he originally didn't have that, but because... He tried to escape while he was there, that every time you escape, you get more time. And so he spent 19 years, though, for stealing a loaf of bread. His family was starving. His sister's family was starving, literally starving. And so he was taking a loaf of bread to feed them. And he was caught, and he was thrown in prison. Now, Jean Valjean was, was released, and again, make the long story short, he was given a new, a new chance, and, and through some circumstances, he becomes the mayor of this city. Nobody knows he's Jean Valjean because he has a yellow card and, and as a prisoner he couldn't do anything in France. So through these circumstances he becomes somebody else and he becomes the mayor of this town. But this inspector becomes new who used to be the warden at the prison that Jean Valjean was at. And now he's an inspector, Inspector Chavez. And inspector Chavez comes and he sees the mayor and he says, I know this guy. This has got to be Jean Valjean. There's nobody else who's built like him. And he heard the story about how Jean Valjean, or how the mayor had lifted this, this roof beam and, and, and released this man from it. And, and he says, only one man, kind of this thing again, right? Only one person could have done this. Well, anyways, again, somebody is trapped under a cart. Nobody can do anything. So Jean Valjean, who's now the mayor, says, well, you guys aren't going to do anything. out of it. And he gets under there, and he picks the cart up and releases this guy from it. And Chavez knows this has got to be Jean Valjean. And so he is the epitome of law. And law has no room for mercy. But what the mayor, Jean Valjean, has learned through, again, this priest that he, he met, is that within the confines of justice, there is the concept of mercy. And so he has applied this, and this is how he has endeared himself through this, to the city because he's a man of great goodness being displayed in mercy and grace. Now, this is all from Victor Hugo. Figure that one out, huh? Anyways, and so at the end, long story short, they meet up numerous times, okay? I mean, it's one of these tragedy type things, you know? Chavez, Inspector Chavez, winds up committing suicide. 
rather than taking Jean Valjean back in. Now, this is after he's already arrested him once and da 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 da. I mean, it's just gone on, okay? But in the end, he keeps seeing Jean Valjean being merciful and full of grace to people who don't deserve it. Even to Inspector Chavez, who was at the point of death when people were going to kill him. But they didn't realize that, that this guy was Jean Valjean and that he knew Chavez. And Jean Valjean should have been the one who tried to kill Chavez, but what he does was he releases him and gives him his freedom. Grace. And so Chavez waits for him on the other sides of the sewer lines. And when Jean Valjean comes through, he's there waiting to arrest him. But then in his mercy, he gives Jean Valjean an opportunity to say goodbye to his daughter. And he realizes at that moment he just extended what? Mercy. And now he can't figure himself out anymore because he's always been the wolf who's been all about law. But in Jesus Christ, in the God of the universe, you have that, that balance between justice and law and goodness extended by his mercy and his grace. And we see it predominantly here in this concept of redemption. That God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, wherewith he loved us, he, when we were dead, made us alive by his what? By his grace you are saved. It's not because of your works. It's not because of your goodness. Even stealing one loaf of bread, according to the law, makes you a what? A thief. And kids, stealing that piece of bubble gum at Walmart proves you are a thief. You didn't become a thief because you stole it. You stole it because you're a thief. Because you're a sinner. And God's standard, as we talk about this, of righteousness, is not just a standard of outward righteousness, but it's a standard of inward righteousness. But God in his goodness gives us the opportunity by his mercy and by his grace to come to him. Titus 3, 4 and 7. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he what? He saved us. Through the washing of the regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace. Do you see how these two aspects are coming, coming together here? We should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And in Psalm 25, 6-10, to show that it's consistent all the way into the Old Testament as well. Remember me, O Yahweh, O Lord, your, your tender mercies, your racham and your loving kindnesses, your chesed, for they are from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me. For your goodness sake, O Lord, good and upright is the Lord. For therefore he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice. And the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of Yahweh are mercy, chesed and emet. Chesed and emet. To such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. Because of God's goodness, because of his mercy, because of his grace, do you see what it says that's consistent here? What does God do? Verse 8, 
Good and upright is the Lord, therefore He what? Teaches sinners in the way. The goal of God's goodness has always been to bring sinners to repentance. To bring sinners to repentance. Now, hopefully, all of you have already walked that path. You've already seen the fact that you are unworthy and that you have accepted what he's given to you. The next part is the process of restoration. Now, I call it this because I may have been redeemed. I may have been brought to him and saved. But there is a point where you as a believer, when you sin again, even after redemption, you bring a separation in your relationship with God. And God still, in His goodness, desires for you to be what? Restored. He still wants you to come to repentance. Does that make sense? God still wants you to change the way you think and still to be restored. He still wants that relationship with you and He wants it to be tighter and tighter all the time. And so we're told in 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in grace. And in the what? Knowledge, the intimate knowledge, the relational knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Psalm 51, turn with me there. These will all be from the Psalms, so we can kind of hang out in the same area here. Psalm 51. David was writing after his sin with Bathsheba, after Nathan the prophet had confronted him. And he declares in verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my what? Transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David is crying out to God for forgiveness, for a restoration of his relationship, but he's calling, calling upon what? God's goodness, God's mercy. God's loving kindness, God's favor. Okay, all these words are in play here again for it to be accomplished. Turn to Psalm 86. Verse 1 to 6. David again writes, Bow down your ear to me, O Yahweh, hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am holy. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cry to you all day long. Rejoice the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to what? To forgive. I like the word restore. In abundant mercy to all those who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplications. Drop down to verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious. That's mercy and grace. Long-suffering and abundant in chesed and emet. O turn to me and have mercy upon me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. And again, David, crying out to God, calls out to God for his goodness, his mercy, his grace. And again, all three words there in the Greek, his mercy, his grace, his favor. Turn to Psalm 103, 103. We're going to read the first 17 verses. 
It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from destruction. Who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. Who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Do you get what um, David is, is declaring throughout these verses so far? These are all expressions of what? His goodness, his grace, and his mercies. I mean, you know, his forgiveness, his healings, his, his redemption, his crowning with loving kindness and tender mercies. Verse 6 The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed and made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. What do you call that? Mercy. He's not dealt with us according to our sins. That's mercy. Without the word being there, that's mercy. Nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so Yahweh pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like the grass, as a flower of the field. So he flourishes, for the wind passes over it, and it's gone. In its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of Yahweh, the mercy of the Lord, is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him in His righteousness to children's children. You may be His. You may have come because of His mercy by His grace to receive the gift of salvation. And once saved, always saved. There is nothing that can remove you from the love of Christ. There can, nothing can take you out of the hand of the Father. You can't even do it. But you can separate the relationship. Just as Jesus cried out in the garden, Father, if there's any way to let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And we think sometimes the nails and everything, and I don't think that was really the ultimate thing that he was, he was struggling with. It wasn't the physical pain. That's bad enough as it is. But I think that what Jesus knew what was going to happen, that he who knew no sin was going to become sin for us. And the minute he became sin, he no longer be what? Accepted in the presence of God. And from all eternity past, in the Godhead, there was never what? Separation. And for that one eternal moment, it's mind-boggling. I, I, I can't comprehend it all. When he became my sin, and it was destroyed on the cross, and the Father accepted his sacrifice, there was that separation. And God says, even here in the Old Testament, His mercy is just out there. But ultimately, 
it's all about repentance and restoration. And so if you are a believer, but you are struggling with sin, there is a separation between you and the Father, between you and God. And God, by His goodness, is still calling you to repentance. Not redemption, but restoration. Repentance in the process of restoration. It is still His goodness, His mercy. You don't deserve. Shall I, as Paul says in Romans 5, going into 6, so should we continue to sin that grace may abound? And he says what? God forbid. It may never be so. When I trample the sacrifice of Christ through my sin, my disregard for his grace and his mercy that he's extended to me, he would be just outside of his covenants and faithfulness. He would be just to, to sweep me away and say, I died for you, and this is how you want to treat it. But God, who is full of goodness, wants you to be restored. The question is, do you? Do I? Do I want restoration? Do I want the fullness of a relationship? Do I want that true eternal life? Jesus said, I came that you might have life and enjoy and that you might have it what? More abundantly. But it's going to come in a relationship with him. In Hebrews chapter 4, go there with me. This is our last passage to turn to. Hebrews 4, verse 16. We read, and I'm going to start reading in verse 14 for context because it's important. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us, therefore, based upon the fact that, that Jesus is there, let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of what? Grace, that we may obtain what? Mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Does anybody know what the 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 place on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament was called? The mercy seat. The mercy seat. It's the same concept here. And in, in a sense, once a year, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the, the priest, the high priest, would enter into the Holy of Holies to approach the what? Mercy seat. It's, it's really the idea. Because that was symbolic of of the throne of God, the throne of grace, the seat of mercy, the place of God's goodness. And because of what Jesus has done for you, he who knew no sin, he has afforded you the opportunity to boldly go before his throne of grace to obtain mercy and grace. You don't have to fear that God is condemnation upon you. You're his child. Mom and dad, think about your own kids. 
you may be greatly grieved at the sin that they get into. But when their heart is changed and they're humbled and they come to you and they say, as the prodigal, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. Which one of you turns to them and says, get away from me, you scumbag? You don't do that, do you? Your heart, like butter, melts. You embrace them and say what? I love you. I'll always love you. If we, as humans, can comprehend that in just a little kernel of it, how much more so the eternal love, grace, and mercy, goodness of God to those who are called by his name. So I don't know if this applies to any of you. I trust that God has his purpose in this. How have you appropriated the goodness of God in your life? Have you come to him for redemption? Are you in need to come for restoration? God in his goodness desires to redeem you and restore you. Are you willing to accept that by faith? Not by your works. See, so many times we understand the concept that I can't be saved by works, right? But then after I'm saved, I think what? God receives me based upon my, my works. But what we just read in, in, in the Psalms is that God understands that I'm what? I'm dust. That I'm nothing. I don't have the power in and of myself to be a righteous man. But I can do all things through Christ who what? Strengthens me. It's by his power, not mine. Have you taken God's goodness for granted? I, for one, am willing to confess that there are more times than I'd like to admit that I presume upon the goodness of God. We can say presuming upon the grace of God, but it's the goodness of God. Because I assume his mercy. I, I assume that if, if I, even if I just give in to this one right now, God what? God loves me, and he's not going to reject me. And I know, memorizing scripture, that, that if I confess my sin, he'll what? He'll be faithful and just to forgive me my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Doesn't that stink? And even with that attitude, do you know what? God is still good. And God is still more righteous than my righteousness than I could ever give to him. And his grace and his mercy far outweighs in the grace and the mercy I could ever presume that he has. And even knowing my wickedness, because that's wicked. I mean, I don't want to paint myself as, you know, well, I'm more righteous than this person is, or I'm, I'm, I'm better than that person is. And my sin is really just a point one on the Richter scale where theirs is like a 25,000, you know. I mean, so really, I'm okay. No, sin is sin is sin. It's disgusting before God. It's an abomination. I don't care if you slightly cover, change the truth just a little bitty bunch. God says it's wickedness. It's an abomination. It's a stench in his nostrils. Okay, so, make, so say what it is. I'm a worm. I'm a worm who's saved by grace. I'm only something because God made me something by his grace. Do you get that? It hasn't changed after I got saved. I'm still only something because what? Because God saved me. But I prove 
almost daily? Probably daily. It's just that I don't want to admit it to myself. Then I still struggle with what? Sin. With the lusts of my flesh. And God is still what? Good. All the time. What are you going to do with this goodness? Are you going to presume upon it? Or are you going to, we're going to talk about this next week, worship him because of it and desire to reflect him in it? When we look at God, how we respond really reveals the relationship that I have with him, if there really is one. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you that it is so comprised within your goodness and that you desire all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. I thank you, God, that even after that point, you still even more so have this desire for my life to see me increasingly conformed to the image of your blessed Son, Jesus Christ in whom the fullness of God dwelt bodily, in whom was no sin, and that you desire for us then to be holy as you are holy, to have clean hands and a pure heart and a soul that's not lifted unto idols. God, I pray that you will help us to humble ourselves before you. Lord, to see the dross that's within us and desire to repent because it is your goodness that leads us to repentance. But Lord, may it not be um, a sorrow that is of the world which may cry and cry overwhelmingly but never come to a point of change in the way we think. But Lord, that we would see our sin as sin as abominations before you. And that we would be renewed in the spirit of our minds. That we may put on the new man who is increasingly being conformed in righteousness and true holiness according to your perfect desire. In Jesus' name, amen.